Okay, so this passage of scripture, there's a few things that jump out at us, and I want to talk about fasting today because obviously we're going to be fasting this week. And when I say we, I don't mean Linda and I, I mean we are going to be fasting. And I know for some people, you think, um, some people think it's medically impossible to fast, and how could I possibly skip two meals in the day that would kill me? But remarkably, we actually can survive it. So fasting, by definition, is just to give up normally food, or you can, I suppose you could fast anything, but the idea of fasting is that we give up food, and what we're going to call for is a three-day liquid fast. Now, what you liquidize and your liquidizer is between you and the Lord. I'm not going to get into your steaks and potatoes and your liquidizer, but um, it is, it's not what we do specifically. It's actually, and we're going to see this now in this preach, about something that, a transaction that takes place between us and God. So Jesus assumes, first of all, he assumes three things in this. Number one, that we will fast. Number two, he tells us what fasting is not, and then he tells us what fasting is actually all about. And uh, we're going to look at that and then some specific aspects of fasting. But I love this quote by a guy called Edward Farrell, and he says this, Almost everywhere at all times, fasting has held a place of great importance since it is closely linked with the intimate sense of religion. And by religion there, he means a good thing, a relationship with God. Perhaps this is the explanation for the demise of fasting in our day. When the sense of God diminishes, fasting disappears. And, uh, and yet Jesus doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast. And uh, I remember the one time I was in the, um, the, in the States, I was doing some, um, like a secondment across there. And our church back home, I, I was across there for six weeks. And during that time, our church back home um, started fasting. And so, I mean, I'm part of the church, doesn't matter where I am around the world. So I was fasting in the States um, during that time. And there were some people that were like quite taken aback. Not so much the people that aren't part of the church. They don't really care. They think church people are weird anyway, so they don't care what church people do. But some of the church people took it like, they were like, man, what are you doing? It's, just, it's, it's a little bit like tithing. People think it's a, nice, a theory thing that people maybe once did, but they don't do anymore. And I think people think of fasting the same way as well. Maybe that's what monks do or something like that. But actually, it's something Christ has called us to incorporate as part of our walk with Him. It's not unique to Christianity. There are all sorts, of, all sorts of other religions fast as well. And so the Jews do, obviously. We come out of that Jewish tradition. And they, they, they fast in Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. The, the Hindus fast. The high-cost Brahmins fast. There's aesthetic fasting of Buddhism to deny the body. There's fasting for political reasons. Mahatma Gandhi fasted often and hunger striking, I suppose you'd call it, with the end of seeing some political change take place. Um, there's fasting for health benefits. I, um, I was do, doing some Googling of fasting and a whole lot of guys with six packs came up on Google images. So I realized there's another whole idea of, and I sent the pictures to Burtis, and no, I'm joking. And, um, but they're... Um, there is, I suppose, I mean, that's a valid reason for fasting as well. And then there's what I call idiotic fasting or stupid fasting, which um, is in the scripture as well. There's a, there's a story about a few guys that were intent on killing Paul. So Paul's the apostle. He's preaching this gospel of grace. And the religious movement of the day is like really upset about this. And in Acts 23, you can go read about this. But um, these group of guys came to the religious leaders because Paul was being transferred from one part of Israel to another going through this whole trial and thing that he was going through before he was sent to Rome. And they said, look, call for Paul to be sent back to Jerusalem, and we're going to wait in ambush. And as soon as they transfer him, we're going to fall upon Paul, and we're going to kill him. And they said this, and we've taken a, a vow 
to fast until Paul is dead. Now, I don't know if you know the story, but they didn't kindly, the ambush didn't work out because the Romans put a whole garrison around Paul and he ended up being shipped off to Rome and would die years later in Rome. And I thought, I've often thought about these men that made this vow to fast until Paul was dead, walking around emancipated because they wouldn't be able to lay their hands on Paul. And so there's all sorts of stupid reasons for fasting. There's political reasons. There's even religious reasons. And, uh, and fasting's not unique to Christianity. So there must be something specifically in the manner and the reason we fast as Christians that sets our fasting apart. And Jesus starts off by saying, do not fast like the hypocrites. So a hypocrite comes from a Greek word which means to put a mask on that what's on the outside is not what's on the inside. I'm pretending to be something that I'm not. And um, what would happen, and, and it was obviously a, a bit of an issue in these days, is that um, we would make a, a real fanfare out of the fact that they were fasting. Now, Jesus is not telling us that we can only fast privately, like um, otherwise it would be difficult for us to call for a time like this of being able to fast together because we'd all maybe have to say, look, sometime in the next year I want you to fast, but don't tell us when and we'll try and coordinate it so we can all be fasting at the same time. That wouldn't work. And again and again in Scripture we see that there was these times where they fasted together. In Acts 13, for example, verses 2 and 3, it says, speaking of this group of leaders, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then the next chapter in Acts 14, verse 23, this is Paul and Barnabas as they're traveling around um, planting churches. It says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so the issue is not whether somebody knows we're fasting or not. It's actually the motive behind why we fast. And if our motive is because, I think there's two incorrect motives for fasting. One is that we can be seen by people and seen to be more religious or more spiritual than we are. I think that's a a particular disease that can come upon the church, a desire to seem more spiritual. And so we want people to see us praying or to see us giving or to see us doing any number of things so they can assume that we are somehow more righteous than we actually are. In um, South Africa, in the church we led there, we had a magazine that obviously went out, the church magazine that came out on a regular edition. And the name of the magazine was Get Real. And it was because it was my heart that I wanted us to be real with each other and not to wear masks. Anybody can sit here and pretend to be religious. And we, we might have this idea of you that you're this incredibly have it all together kind of person. One of the things that struck Linda and I is sometimes we look at people and we see their marriages and we go, wow, that couple have really got it together. And then a few months later, they come and sit in our lounge and they tell us about all the issues that are going on. And we remind it again that just because you see something on the outside that looks amazing doesn't mean that there aren't the struggles on the inside. And so I really do want to, um, the response the reason why we're fasting is not because we want anybody to see us as anything special or that we're particularly religious. And this week as we go into fasting, I mean, we might give each other a couple of half hours because we've actually done it. You've got through to day three on Wednesday and you've, you know, you've not cheated on your fast and you didn't liquidize at stake like you thought you were going to have to. Um, but, the, but the issue is we're not seeking the approval of men, um, or the admiration of men, which which obviously was a problem and is a problem in mankind. Jesus says this in Mark 12. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes 
and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour wooded houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater commendation. If we're fasting so that people can see us fast, then that's your reward. <laughs> You've got it there and then. If, so, if, if the reason you're doing it is so that someone will come down and just say, man, you, you're amazing, you fasted for the three days, and that's the whole reward of what you're going to get. There is something beyond that that God wants to take us into. That's, number one, is being seen by people. The other sense is that fasting is a form of penance or arm twisting for God. The idea that, um, you know, I, I remember seeing a movie years and years and years ago about a monk who was, who obviously didn't really know the Lord because he was getting up into all sorts of unmonkly things. And when he did something wrong, he would make himself a little whip like this and flay himself on his back to kind of punish himself for the bad thoughts or the bad actions. There could be nothing further from Christianity than that idea. Christ has borne our sin upon the cross. And when we do um, sin, the, the right response is to confess it to him and receive the forgiveness that he promises us and the, and the restoration to that path of righteousness. And fasting is, is in no way could be taken as some form, of, some form of penance. So I'm fasting now to make up for the bad thoughts I had or this thing that I've done wrong or like, like I'm going to pay some sort of price for this thing. There could be nothing further from the truth. Or the idea that fasting is a, is a form of twisting the arm of God. He won't listen to me like if I just pray and ask. But if I fast, he's going to see, like a hunger strike. God, I'm, gonna, I'm not eating anything until you give me the answer to prayer. I want to tell you, God won't be particularly moved by you putting him into, trying to paint him into that corner. Which brings me to the third point, what fasting actually is all about. And Jesus says, your father sees your father sees. And uh, our fasting has to be unto God and not unto men. Jesus doesn't tell us what it's not and leave us hanging there. He points us to what fasting actually is about, which is intimacy with the God, that, with the Father, God the Father, the Gather. It's, um, it's directing all of our hearts and all of our attention toward Him. In, um, in, his, in his booklet, his his paper, John Piper writes a paper called A Hunger for God, and he speaks about fasting. And it's quite a long quote. I'm going to read it to you. He says, fasting should come from confidence in Christ. It is sustained by the power of Christ and aims at the glory of Christ. I want to read that again because it's beautiful, isn't it? Think about it this week as we, as we fast. Fasting should come from confidence in Christ. It is sustained by the power of Christ and aims at the glory of Christ. Over every Christian fast should be written the words, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In fasting, as well as in all other priviations, which just means denying ourselves, every loss is for the sake of gaining Christ. But this does not mean that we seek to gain a Christ we do not have, nor does it mean that our progress depends upon ourselves. Four verses later, Paul makes plain the dynamics of the entire Christian life, including fasting. I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. This is the essence of Christian fasting. We ache and yearn and fast to know more and more of all that, is, of all that God is for us in Jesus, but only because he has already laid hold of us. And so as we come into this time of fasting, there's a, a laying down of 
foregoing of something, and for us it's meals, so that we can give our attention to Him. I know for mums, you know, it'd be, it'd be easy if everybody in your house was fasting, and so the time that you normally spend cooking meals and cleaning the dishes, you could spend in prayer. But I know that for many of the mums, you're still cooking and eating. Ethan said, what's fasting? Not that he's not come across it before. He says, well, you don't eat food. He kind of looked with his eyes of panic, like Linda leaned across, it's fine, you can have food. And uh, so the, it's, it's not like there's going to be like tons of time, but it, but it is a reminder. I find when I fast, for example, that, that when the hunger comes, I, I don't kind of go like, gee, I'm sacrificing dramatically for God, that, that sense inside of me. There's a sense in me that I'm, um, I'm reminded, I'm reminded that I'm putting God first and my fleshly desires second. That's all it is. And so there are, there are hungers of the flesh that are around us all the time, not just for food. Am I right? There's, there's a hunger in our flesh for, for, for people to like us. There's a hunger in our flesh for, for physical intimacy or sexual intimacy. There's all sorts of um, legitimate desires, that, and they're not illegitimate. There's legitimate desires that come from our, our body, but we're not led by those things. We're led by our spirit man and our spirit woman inside of us. And this is a time for us to almost say to the flesh, just calm down for a bit. Just calm down. I'm, I'm exercising my spiritual man for a moment. I'm giving some space to this spiritual man or woman inside of us to, uh, to take preeminence here in my relationship with God. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful place we come into. I want to give you some warnings about fasting if you haven't fasted before. Number one is your breath starts to stink. So uh, if it doesn't already, and I'm joking. So... So use breath mints. That's a very practical one. The other one is that some of the stinkiness inside of our characters begins to come out as well. And so if you're an impatient person, it's like during fasting, you can be like Superman impatient, super impatient man, or if you're a whatever it is that in your character, and it really is a place of God almost doing um, like a, an audit of what's inside of your life as well. Um, the, the hardest days of fasting are often the first two days, which is pretty much what we're going to do. So we're going to do the hardest days. After that, it gets a whole lot easier. Um, but I really want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to press through, not to find it, um, not, not to balk at the difficulty, but to, to press through in these things. So Jesus shows us that, that fasting should be a regular part of our lives. I'm not saying how often you ought to do it in, in each of us. There's no, there certainly is no prescription in Scripture at all of what it should look like, but there should be some fasting in our lives. Secondly, we're not to fast for the wrong motive, which is to be seen by men or to twist the arm of God or to pay some sort of price. Christ has paid the price. And thirdly, it's unto God. It actually brings us into a place, ought to bring us into a place of deeper intimacy with God. Um, and, uh, and everything that we're asking for, and I'm going to get onto the, the why and the when of fasting right now, but everything we ask for has to flow from Him and not from our fasting. It's not as if our fasting, our denying our food is suddenly going to earn us something. It just brings us into a place of intimacy that in our asking, all the distractions are moved away and we can ask with clarity of our Father. So let's look then at some of the whens and the whys. There's a whole lot, if you go through Scripture and you just um, type in the word fasting and pull it out, there's a whole lot of places where fasting comes up for various reasons. Um, and I obviously can't go through all of these. I'm going to go through one. In fact, there's three pages of, of these. Number one is, is strengthening prayer. We, we fast sometimes just because we need to be strengthened. Whether it's some great task that's ahead of us, 
or whatever it is, some, some, um, some mandate that God has given us, and we know that it's going to be difficult to, to get through, oftentimes to fast beforehand so that we can get to a place later on when we get there like this, we, we, um, that strength is there for us to be able to endure it. I mean, let me just say on this thing, the season you're in is a preparation for the season you're coming to. And nothing of the, the difficulty or the pain that you're going through, and I'll qualify this in a second, is wasted in God. It feels like it is. It feels so random and otherwise, and, but it's, it's not. God speaks about, um, he, he catches our tears in a bottle. Every tear we ever cry, somehow God stores up. It's a remarkable thought, isn't it, that nothing is wasted. I do think there are two kinds of suffering. There's in, in tax law, there's something called tax evasion and tax avoidance. Tax avoidance, you get two thumbs up for. That means that you are legally paying the, the least amount of tax that you can, which is a good thing to do. Tax evasion is illegal. You're not to go that route. If anybody ever asks, your pastor tells you not to evade tax, which is not so much of an issue in this country. But I think suffering is like that as well. I think there's suffering that we get to avoid. Like, don't suffer because of stupidity or because of hard-heartedness. God hasn't called you to suffer for those reasons. But sometimes God does call us to suffer. There's, and to, if we were to um, somehow try and get around that, that would be suffering evasion. In one Peter, uh, Peter writes and he says, that we do, you know, if you, if you suffer for doing bad, I mean, if you get punished for doing something wrong, then what, what merit is that to you? But if you get punished for doing something good for the sake of Christ, then he says, that's to your credit. He says, for to this you were called. And we see in the example of Jesus Christ. And so there are times where God calls us through seasons that feel like suffering. And we're not to run around that. We just go through the valley of the shadow of death. And I want to say, prepare yourself. If God speaks to you about what's to come, prepare yourself in your heart. Okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you through you. I'm not going to let go of your hand. I'm not going to turn and scream. I'm not going to dig a hole and bury myself. I'm going to follow you through this because I know you're going to take me through it. Strengthening prayer. The second type is seeking God's guidance. Big decisions to make. Just take a time of fasting. Seek um, the wisdom of God. And sh- uh, again, we... We hear from God in a variety of different ways. I sat with a couple the other day that were thinking of, we were in South Africa this week ministering there, and this couple are thinking they've got an opportunity to move to Qatar and Doha to go and take up a job there. And we said, that's wonderful if God has spoken. You need to find out if he's spoken. And God speaks to us through peace in our heart. Like we process the decision. Does it, God says, let the, the peace of God rule in your heart. He speaks to us through his word. So if you're reading his word and you're doing something contrary to the word of God, obviously you don't do that. It's just his written word. Then there's rhema word. Sometimes you're reading a passage of scripture that's written to some church 2,000 years ago, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is for me right now. I know what this means. It's like so clear the spirit of God is using that in speaking. Through um, those that you submit your life to, there's, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. There's men or women that you trust and you say, speak to me about this thing. And finally, and lastly, and least importantly, is circumstances. I've got to preach that I would do sometime about the, the, the devil also issues visas. Just because a door opens doesn't mean it's God opening the door. But we've got to pray and ask God for his wisdom so that we end up going through the right doors. Sometimes we fast as an expression of grief. And David, you know that when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, she fell pregnant. And then that they were... That, then the baby was dying, and so David went to fast. 
I think he fasted for two reasons, I believe. One was because he really hoped that God would intervene a breakthrough and the baby wouldn't die. And the other was, I think, a sense of grief. And sometimes um, things happen and we actually go into time of fasting to express our grief and to work our way through the grief of what we go through. Expressing repentance and returning to God. And a few scriptures there. Um, Jonah, which I preached when we did the combined meeting here. Nehemiah is another one. When Nehemiah hears about what's happened in Jerusalem and it says he, he went into time of prayer and fasting and repented on behalf of Israel. And uh, not just for himself, but for his people. And sometimes we fast in repentance. And if, um, you know, if for example, if we became aware of, of like a, a spiritual thing that was operating within will of life, we might fast as a, an eldership and repent on behalf of our church, or we might fast and repent on behalf of our nation if something were going on. And so that's, that's another thing. Humbling ourselves before God, expressing concern for the work of God. Again, Nehemiah, he's like, he can, the, the temple's gone up, but the wall hasn't gone up. And sometimes we look at the work of God in a nation, maybe Sri Lanka, for example, and uh, thank God for what he's doing there, but still one, maybe 2% of the nation um, are Christian. Maybe. I don't even think it's that many. That means 98% of that 20 million people don't know the Lord. And you might like be burdened with such concern for the work of God in that nation that you say, well, I'm going to set aside some time to fast and pray for a breakthrough to take place in that nation. Um, ministering to others, we fast. Isaiah 58, the great passage on fasting. And um, Isaiah writes and he talks about don't fast for this reason, this reason. I mean, he says, don't be a when I was typing him the, the title for the preach, fasting, it autocorrected into farting. And that was nearly, you nearly had that on my slide. Farting and prayer. But uh, as, as I says, don't be an old fart when you're fasting. He says, don't be grumpy and kind of indulge yourself and things like that. He says, actually have a deep concern for other people. This is the kind of fasting to release the yoke of bondage and to uplift the, the poor and the oppressed. And that's what we need to be doing. We need, that's the that's one um, type of fasting as well, that we, we're actually ministering to others. Overcoming temptation and dedicating yourself to God. Jesus in the desert, led by the Spirit of God, went into a time of fasting. And uh, the, the, obviously the, the fasting itself brought him to a place of hunger. But, he was, but also there are times where if you're facing areas again in your life where it's become a pattern that you want to break, getting into a, a time of fasting, prayer before the Lord. It might be one day a week for a few weeks. It might be a couple of days. It might be a week. Whatever it is that the Lord leads you to fast and say, Lord, actually one of the things that I want to do over this time is I want to break the power of this that is a hold over my life, this temptation that just visits me again and again and again. I want to break it. I want to rededicate my life to you. You're not doing, you're not um, crucifying Christ again. It's got nothing to do with that. It's, it's, it's breaking things off your life. In the same way that Remember I said to you that there's legitimate the desires that come out of our flesh that we satisfy illegitimately. That's what temptation is. This is a legitimate desire come satisfied in this illegitimate way. That's what sin is when we give in to that. And so we're going to say, well, flesh, you just quieten down because we are not led by our desires. We lead our desires. Even our feelings. Feelings are real and when they're not to be ignored and they're not to be... Um, you know, mocked, they, they, they're very much a part of our Christian life, but we can't be led by our feelings. Sometimes we feel like our marriage is great, and sometimes we feel like it's not, but thank God we made a vow when we got married so that whether our feelings are up or down, we're married. Sometimes we feel like God loves us, and sometimes we feel like He doesn't, but I promise you He does, 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. On a good day, on a bad day, Jesus loves me. When I had a quiet time that, that made the demons shake, Jesus loves me. And when I got up late and I missed my quiet time and I rushed straight into work, he still loves me because the Bible tells me so. I'm not, I'm not limited by my feelings. Expressing worship for God and then lastly, seeking breakthrough or deliverance. And uh, that's the one I want to look at. There's a number of examples of this. Um, Chronicles 20 is Jehoshaphat, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Don't you love Jehoshaphat? They're going into this battle against the enemy, and he says, this, he says I, I don't even know what to do. I can't see how I'm going to overcome this enemy. And God's great strategy is send the worshipers out in front. So they prayed and fast, and God gave them the strategy, and they send the worshipers out in front. And while the worshipers were leading them into battle, God throws the enemy into confusion, and they so destroy each other that when they come over, they, they, there's, there's so much plunder left behind that it takes them three days to reap it. God wants to give us those kind of breakthroughs. And uh, Ezra chapter 8, um, actually, I read it this morning, but I can't remember exactly what it's about. But I want to just touch on one quick story, and then I'm going to lead us to talk about, I'm going to take five minutes to talk about what we're praying for specifically as a church, okay? So that's the story of Esther. And I've shared it before here. You guys know it well. You know it's one of my favorites. So this guy, one of the guys in the story, has, um, and it's a true account, has got it in for the Jews and he wants to kill the Jews. And so he, he manipulates the king so the king will pass a law that on a certain day they can have this purge. Any of you see that movie, The Purge? You shouldn't be watching movies like that. They're bad movies. I haven't seen it. I just want you to know that. But um, if you did watch it, maybe you should fast and repent. No, I'm joking. Anyway, the, the story of this movie, if I remember from seeing the trailer, is that there's one night where you can just kill anybody you want to and the law doesn't matter. That's what the, 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 this movie is about. So if you're in your neighbor, you hate your neighbor, this is the night you can actually just go kill them and then nobody cares and then tomorrow everything's kind of cleaned out again. And this is what they planned for the Jews. There's gonna be one day where you could go kill your Jewish neighbor and you could have his stuff. So you kind of look across and oh, he's got a Ferrari, I don't mind him, but I'm going to take him out because I want that Ferrari or whatever it is. And so there was this, this day was planned. And Mordecai, who's a Jew in the courts of the king, comes to Esther, who through the workings of God has ended up being the queen. And, he, and it's his, the relationship's not completely clear, but it's, it's like his, probably his niece. And he comes to her and he says to her, you need to go to the king and petition him on our behalf that, he, that this thing change. And she... she She's the queen, but he's the king. And in that society, there was no comparison. And if, um, if she would have come unannounced into his presence, she would be put to death. She knew that because the previous queen had been put aside. And, you know, there was no particular loyalty the king had to his queen. And, uh, and then Mordecai says these amazing words to her. Um, well, he says lots of amazing words, but this one in particular, he says, How do you know you weren't born for such a time as this? How do you know you didn't come to this position this place for such a time as this. And it's like, you kind of watch your life and it seems so random. It's the, it's the it's a infighting of a king with his queen. The queen gets rid of some silly advisor, comes up with a suggestion that bring all the beautiful women, the most beautiful women, and you choose one to be your wife. And Esther ends up being the one out of that. So out of God's control, so random, but no, it was the leading and the plan of God that she would be there for just that time. And so she says, okay, I'll go talk to him, but you need a fast and pray. And so the Jews all for three days, which is what we're going to be doing as well, in Esther 4 verse 1 to 3 and 16, it says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, which is a city, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. We are going to drink. They 
They didn't. She goes into the presence of the king, opens the throne room doors, and the king sees her. He hasn't called for her, and the normal practice would be that she would be put to death. There's only one exception, is if the king extends, extends his scepter. And when the king, whose name is too difficult for me to pronounce, we'll call him Bob. When King Bob sees Esther, that's definitely not his name, he, um, he picks up his scepter and he points it towards her. And I want to say that break, and then there was a break, there was one series of things, another breakthrough comes, and all those that actually had intended harm on the Jews themselves were taken out. I want to say God wants us to come before him in prayer and fasting for breakthrough and for deliverance. And we're going to be praying for that. When I was um, asking God what we should be praying into over these three days, I felt him drop in my heart Psalm 133, a psalm that we, I think we know well. It's a psalm about unity. There's a song we used to sing, how, how good and how pleasant it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. And it goes on and says, It is like precious oil poured on the head and running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard and down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessings, blessing even life forevermore. And um, how good and how pleasant it is when the brothers dwell in unity. Friends, I want to say... Unity is not some option we have as Christians. It's not something we, we hope we can get there one day. Actually, it's a command of God, and it's the, it's the emphasis of the Spirit and of the Word of God that we are in unity. And uh, one of the things that we're going to be praying for, and each week, each week, each day, we're going to pray through one of these verses. So in day number one, we're going to pray for the unity of the church. The enemy loves to be divisive, doesn't he? He's not stupid. There's a he, he knows these strategies, and we see them being played out in the, in the natural as well. But if he can cause division he can, in your home, then you're done. If he can cause division in the church, then we're done. Our effectiveness is robbed from us when we divide it. And so God wants us to be unified. A friend of mine said this, you can journey towards agreement or unanimity, but you can't journey towards unity. You have to be there. You have to choose to be unified. And it's the way that we talk to each other the way we talk about each other and uh, it's it's when somebody offends us it's how we process that do we like if Deepak says something that's offensive to me do I then go to Chris and say Chris can I just get your advice I mean I'm not gossiping but Deepak said this and he said that and if actually Chris no, you're not the right person and then we and we go across and we say Linda can I just tell you what Deepak did to me he said this and we begin to spread this throughout no no the Bible's clear in terms of how we deal with this thing if somebody has sinned against you go to them one-on-one Deepak, when you said that to me the other day, I heard my feelings. Jeez, Rob, what did I say? This, I, I never meant it like that. Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad we sorted that out. Or, oh, Rob, you're right. I was in a bad mood that day, and I'm really sorry. Please, can you forgive me? Oh, Deepak, I do forgive you. Thanks for saying that. We keep our unity. We guard ourselves. And the enemy wants to do it in, in all sorts of ways. He wants to distract us from the purpose, the single mandate that we have as a church. And I know sometimes when you sit in the pews here, you're thinking, well, what contribution am I making? You know that you make a contribution in, the, in your life groups, when we come together in prayer, in your giving, in your going, in your um, gospel mission, in your marketplace. We, we all are making a contribution to this that God has called us to do. And sometimes you don't see it. You need to be confident that God is working and using us together. The second chapter speaks about how the oil is poured out on the head and then on the beard and flows down. And I think that means... That, uh, that God wants us to pray for the leaders of the church. I, I see that there is such an attack on leadership, not just in the church, but in the home and in the world today. I went back to um, 
when we were South African, I, I connected with Titch from Live Village. He remembers a choir that we had here just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Hannah got to see the friend, one of the friends that stayed with us. It was really amazing. And, and, um, and Titch is just saying what a tough time he's faced in his leadership since he's got back. It's just been like one attack after the other. And I was speaking to two other pastors that I met with while I was there. And like one's got an attack in this area. He, he preached, I mean, how's this for a message to get attacked on? He preached a series on how we have one father and we have one family. We need to rid our hearts of any residue of racism that remains. And he's been attacked by members of his church for bringing this up. And, uh, and another pastor, it's, it's just like, it feels like there's a real attack on leadership. And we need to, and one of the things I wanted to pray for is for God to undergird and sustain the leadership in this church and the leadership in our homes and, and everywhere else. And not just the unity of us as an eldership or as us as a, uh, elders and deacon team, but also the unity amongst other churches in the city as well. On Monday, we're getting together with a few other leaders from around the city as we're trying to do every month now, twice a month, to pray with the leaders. Um, on November 18th, we're probably going to shut down our evening meeting and all go together to join with Gateway Church for a kind of city celebration with Terry Virgo. In January, we're going to get City Lights are going to join with us. We're going to find a bigger venue that accommodate both churches for a morning with a guy called Mike Pilavachi that we've got coming through, and they've asked to be a part of it. And so we want to really trust for unity, not only in that church, but unity in the, in, the, in the leadership as well. And then lastly, in this passage, it says, um, for there, or for when there's unity, God bestows or commands his blessing and life forevermore. And we've just seen the enemy come in to attack people in their health and in their relationships and their finances and in their careers. And we believe God wants to bring breakthrough. That's what blessing is. It's God's breakthrough. So if you've got, uh, if, there's, if there's sickness in your body and we pray for God's blessing and life evermore, there's breakthrough that God wants to bring in there. And so that on that Wednesday night, we're going to be praying and believing God for breakthroughs, relational breakthroughs. There's people that are sitting on the, on the, on the verge of, like on a knife's edge, where we fall into um, relational wholeness and peace again, or we're going to fall into brokenness. It's like too many Christians, we should not be living on the edge like this, friends. We should be so far from the edge that if we fall, we still fall within the the, the safe place of God. We've got, to, we've got to be able to move our lives across like this. We've got to pray for relational healing and wholeness to come with our children, with our spouses, with work colleagues, whatever it is, we've got to come to a place of wholeness again and our finances. So I'm, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel here. I'm talking about people being set free from bondage to debt and, uh, and, a, and a bondage in their work environment where, where there's just no freedom. God wants to come and bring freedom into that. I, I want to pray for... for um, deliverance from sickness. The name of Jesus is above every other name. I'm, I'm, we know that. I'm not, I don't have to be convinced of that. I just don't always see the evidence of it, and we're going to contend for that. Let the name of Jesus be above cancer and above leukemia and above multiple sclerosis and whatever name can be mentioned. We're going we're to pray for Jesus' deliverance and healing power and agree on that. Amen. In Ephesians 6 verse 12, my last verse, it says the rulers, so it's, we need to contend against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And so we get this week to put on our armor and, uh, and go into battle against the enemy. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that things will be different because we prayed than if we just carried on our lives as normal. And so I'm inviting you, church, 
to be a part of this time with us. If, you, if the thought of fasting for that long is overwhelming to you, then um, yeah, I don't know what to say. Um, they don't. Just come pray with us. You know, fast as long as you can. Whatever, do whatever. It's between you and God. It's, it's to, I don't really mind. I have to be honest. It's between you and the Lord. But try set yourself apart to be together. We're going to be praying as an eldership each day, um, midday, and then we're going to come together again in the evenings to pray with you guys. And so try and be at the warehouse at the well um, every evening from six thirty to seven thirty. We're going to pray there, and then the Wednesday night, bring your your grub with you, and then we're going to break fast and fellowship together and just enjoy our, enjoy each other and as, as we break that fast, okay? Good. Why don't you stand with me, please?